Well, my name's Hunter Jackson. I'm here with my wife, Grace, our son, Josiah, and my wife's sister, Joy. We're from Grace Community Church. I've met most of you at some point, but still some of you here I don't know yet. But anyways, we're glad to be here. So... Let's pray and then we'll look at a few passages of Scripture before we get into the main text for the day. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you today in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're thankful to be here, Lord. Thankful that you've called us out of darkness into the marvelous light of your beloved Son. Father, we ask your help in this time. Lord, give us the Holy Spirit. Lord, help me to preach clearly the Word. Lord, help those who are here to listen. Father, I ask, help me to communicate, to express, Lord, what everyone here who's born again feels so deeply in their soul. We ask your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the first passage that I want to look at is found in Jeremiah chapter 9. Verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, but let let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That'll be the text quoted by our main text for the day, but first two more. James chapter 4, verse 6. <clears throat> but he gives more grace. Therefore it says. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. One more, 1 Peter <coughs> chapter 5 and verse 5. 
Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now our main text. We're speaking to you today from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, and here's that text from Jeremiah 9, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay, Lord helping us now. We're going to take as our topic today the effect or the accomplishment of grace. That's the title of the sermon. The Accomplishments of Grace. And an alternative title that I thought of was The Accomplishments of the Cross, but we're more specifically going to be looking at the aspect of the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. And to set this passage in its context, there's problems at Corinth. The problem of division, you had people boasting in men. One said, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. You know, there's always the one guy, he says, I don't need those other guys 
Paul and Apollos and Cephas. I just follow Christ. I don't need the apostles. But anyways, Paul said this was a problem, this division. It wasn't right. You had people boasting in men, taking pride in the wisdom and superiority of one man over against another. And so Paul begins to correct this problem. He says, I didn't come to you with words of eloquence, words of wisdom, but what was my message? Wasn't it just this Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Not the philosophies of the world, not words of wisdom, but Christ crucified. Man has within him, the natural man has within him, a burning, almost insatiable desire to be wise and to be strong, to be self-sufficient. Satan tempted Eve in the garden with wisdom. You remember that? He showed her the fruit. She said, well, she saw it was desired to make one wise, and she took and she ate. The desire to be wise apart from God, the desire to be strong apart from God, the desire to be self-sufficient apart from the Lord is the natural man's temptation, and he's always looking for this power of the natural man. He wants this wisdom. He wants something to boast in. Something to take pride and confidence in apart from God. But now the cross is completely contrary to that natural desire of man to be wise, to be strong. The Lord operates under this principle of grace. Not what man can do, but what God has done. And so Paul takes up this topic here in our text. And I want to pull out of it for us three things which the Lord has accomplished by His grace. So three accomplishments of grace. And the first thing which the Lord has done is the destruction of human wisdom. If you look with me at verse 19. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? God is out to destroy this human wisdom. And in the Bible, there are two kinds of wisdom. There's the wisdom of man and there's the wisdom of God. In the book of James, chapter 3, we read, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, 
open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So there is this earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom, and there's the wisdom of God that comes down from above. It's the earthly wisdom which the Lord is out to destroy, to bring to nothing, to frustrate. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. See, this is the way the Lord ordained it. It's the wisdom of God that the world wouldn't know Him through wisdom. The world is completely unable to come to a right understanding and a saving knowledge of Christ by its own reasoning, by its own wisdom. The philosophers, the intelligent, the scientific community, try as they might, they cannot arrive at a saving knowledge of God. Before the Lord saved me, I was an atheist. I was lost as a dog. And I was had all these questions. You know, how did I get here? What's, what's this all about? Why do I even exist? How did the world get here? You know, what is my life for? Why was I made? Was it all an accident? These are the questions going through my mind when I was lost in the world without God. And you look to science, and science cannot answer the big questions in the world. They can't tell you, who are you? Why do you exist? For what were you made? Where did you come from? How is the world even here? Science would have you believing it's all an accident. It's all just a random chance. And really, they can't answer these questions. And we're left to look to the Lord to give us the answers that He has given us in the Bible. We're left, we are dependent upon the revelation of God in the Scriptures to know why are we here? To know God, we're dependent upon the Bible. You can't know the Lord apart from what He's revealed in the Scripture. You can't find God savingly in a laboratory. You can't find Him in the institutions of higher learning. You can't go get a degree and get a seal of salvation at the end of that college course. And you can't find God savingly even in most seminaries. You're left to rely only upon what God has revealed Himself to be in the Scriptures. You can't find God in these places. You can't find Him in the higher, the higher schools of thought. You can't find Him in the philosophers of the world. Where can you find God? Turn to Isaiah 57. <coughs> Verse 
15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Those who believe. It's not the wise, it's not the strong, it's not the mighty, but it's those who believe. What does God want from man? Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Enoch walked with God and he says... He pleased God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. See, it isn't the wise. It isn't the strong. But it's the one who will simply trust the Lord for everything He needs. Who throw His whole confidence upon Christ and His cross will find the cross as the power of God for salvation. And in the world's eyes, what could be more foolish than that? Than to believe the message of the cross and to believe in a God who you can't see and yet the one who doesn't knows that it's the power of God. Verse 22, back in our main text. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. Jews demand signs. Jews and Greeks basically represent the two views of lost humanity. There is the religious, self-righteous, and there's the godless idolater, the Gentile. And it's the Jews looking for a sign. Why doesn't the Jew believe in Christ? What was the stumbling block of Christ? The Jew wanted a Messiah who fit their idea of what God was like. The Jew wanted a Messiah who was going to come and throw out the Romans who was going to set up the kingdom, who was going to overthrow the Roman oppression. The Jew wanted a Messiah who was going to fulfill all the carnal promises of the Old Testament, who was going to give them the land full of milk and honey, but they didn't want anything to do with the Messiah who came to die on the cross. They didn't want anything to do with the Messiah who came wearing a crown of thorns, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. They didn't want a Messiah who could be crucified by His enemies. A crucified Messiah? How could, how could any respectable Jew ever believe in that? It's a contradiction. A crucified Messiah. 
But that's exactly what the Lord came to do. You see, it's a stumbling block to Jews because the cross says that we're sinners. And we need somebody who can go to the cross bear our sin for us. We need somebody who can suffer in our place. We need somebody who's willing to be rejected by God that we could be accepted. But the Jew can't stomach the idea that they would have to surrender their self-righteousness. See, the cross says to us that we're not righteous in and of ourselves. That our garments are filthy. They're stained by our sin. Our sins have separated us from God. We're in need of a Savior. Likewise, the same problem exists with the Gentile who's only seeking wisdom. They can't stomach that they would be in need of a bloody sacrifice to remove the guilt of their sin, to reconcile them to God. But to us who are being saved, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, when you know your sins, when you know your guilt, when you know your absolute lost estate, you rejoice to hear of Christ who's died for us. You rejoice to hear that there's a sacrifice for our sins. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. That's what the cross is called, the foolishness of God. The weakness of God. God has utterly destroyed the wisdom of the wise by his foolishness. He shamed their strength by his weakness. Proverbs chapter 3 says, By wisdom the Lord founded the earth by understanding. He established the heavens by his knowledge. The deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down their dew. But by his foolishness he redeems humanity and ransoms the people for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. By his weakness he redeems fallen man and satisfies divine justice. So, the first thing the Lord has done by His grace is destroy the wisdom of the wise by the foolishness of the cross of Christ. Now, the second thing which the Lord has accomplished by His grace is this. The salvation of nobodies. Verse... 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose but is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Isn't it true that the vast majority of us 
And the vast majority of those whom God saves, humanly speaking, are not the cream of the crop. Think about it. Where were you when God called you? Where were you when God saved you? Who were you that the Lord should save you? What did you have to boast in that made God set His love on you? Pull you out of the world? Did you have some one-up on everybody else? Did you have something that made God pick you above all others? Some power, some might, some wisdom that you have that nobody else had. See, the Bible tells us that God doesn't work in that way. But He works by choosing the small, the insignificant, the weak, the nobodies, the nothings. God used Gideon to rout the Midianites. And what did He tell him? He said, you've got too many people with you. Lest Israel boast over me. I can't save you with this many people. So he says, brothers fearful, go home. 22,000 left. He says, you've still got too many people. Lest people say that it wasn't me who saved you. God tells Gideon, have them drink from the water. Whoever lapped the water like a dog stayed to fight the Midianites. And in the end, it was 300 men the Lord used to conquer the Midianite army who had more camels in the sand of the sea. The Lord used little David to fight Goliath. He used Daniel to shame the wise men who couldn't give Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of his dream. He used 12 uneducated common fishermen to turn the world upside down. He used tax collectors and prostitutes to shame the self-righteous Pharisees. God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. See, he was the man's man, the outdoorsman, but the Lord chose Jacob, the one who all of us wouldn't choose, the quiet man dwelling in tents, over the mighty man Esau, who was strong and he was the one who Isaac loved. But God chose Jacob. And why has he done it this way? Why has the Lord operated in this way using the weak things? You see it in our text? Verse 27. To shame. To shame. To shame. God is out to utterly humiliate human wisdom by His weakness, by His power. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the kingdoms plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Laughs. The Lord laughs at the attempts of the world to get a one-up on Him by their power. God is out to utterly rout human strength and wisdom. Now the third effect of the grace of God in salvation is this. The elimination of all grounds of human 
boasting. Verse 29 and 31 through 31. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of Him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's evident from even a cursory reading of Scripture that the Lord hates pride and boasting. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, He will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, 6.16 There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to Him. The top of that list of haughty eyes. Proverbs 8.13 The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. 1 Samuel 2, verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. By Him actions are weighed. See, the Lord hates human wisdom, human pride, human <coughs> boasting. And I think this is displayed... Supremely, in the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, the book of Daniel, chapter 4. You can turn there. King Nebuchadnezzar writes, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion endures from generation to to generation. Nebuchadnezzar writes and he tells of this dream that he had of a great tree. Behold, a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. And in his dream, a watcher, an angel, comes down from heaven and says, Chop down the tree and scatter its fruit. Strip off its leaves. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. And so he wonders, what's the interpretation of this dream? What does it mean? And he calls the wise men. He says, This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw. He calls Daniel also. Oh, Belteshazzar. Daniel's Babylonian name. Tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And Daniel says, O king, 
It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. God's going to humble King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel counsels him, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Perhaps God will lengthen his prosperity. But alas, all of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 28, if you're there in the passage. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And so Nebuchadnezzar was made to eat grass like an ox. And his hair grew long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures to all generations. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? Nobody has power over God. At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and the splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk... In pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar, the mightiest man in all the earth, God humbled to show that those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. To show his displeasure toward human boasting, human wisdom. I want to read... The quotation from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 17. 
The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan. Is God angry with the trees? No. Is He trying to humble the trees? No. It's people. Against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. This God has begun to do already in the work of Jesus Christ. This God has already done he has removed all grounds of human boasting by the death of His Son on the cross. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus. Divine election removes all ground of human boasting in salvation. Our text says God chose. God chose. God chose. Divine election secures salvation for God's people, gives them confidence that His purpose will be fulfilled, and removes all thought that their salvation had anything to do with what they have done. For by grace you have been saved through faith in that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one might and you are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God before ordained that we should walk in them. salvation is the work of God from the beginning to the end nothing in us except our weakness made him choose us. And see, we need to be reminded of this because we tend to forget it. We tend to grow proud and we tend to boast. But God hates all such boasting and He's removed all grounds of it through the death of His Son. Now, verse... 30 again. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our sanctification. Christ is our redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The true Christian cannot boast in anything but what Jesus Christ 
has gone for him or her. We can't boast in anything except for what the Lord is for us. I recall a story of a man in Mark chapter 5 who was bound with chains and he'd break those chains and he would cry out and cut himself in the graveyard and he was out of his mind and he was full of demons. And you and I know better than he when the Lord found us, set us free, set us right, and said, go and tell what great things the Lord has done for you. What great things the Lord has done for us. That's all that we can boast in. All we can boast in is the Lord. What Christ has done for us. And so, we'll end there. Father, Lord, we are thankful for what you have done for us. And Lord, we boast in you this morning. We're thankful, Father, to be saved. We're thankful, Lord, for your unchangeable purpose. We're thankful, Lord, for the death of your Son. I pray, Lord, that you take what we've shared here today, Lord, Seal it to our hearts. Use it for the edification of your people. Pray you'd be with our time here in the Lord's Supper and the rest of our afternoon. In Christ's name, amen.